this morning, Jim called us to worship with Psalm 145, section of uh, great worship and psalms of praise, and we will continue now for our prayer, praying from Psalm 147. So I invite you to bow your head with me as we pray to our Lord. Oh God, we praise you. It is good for us to sing praises to you, our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord, you, Father, you build up your church. You gather the outcasts. You bring them together here at Westmount Bible Chapel. You heal the brokenhearted. You bind up the wounds. You, sovereign God, determine the number of the stars. You give to them all their names. Great are you, God, and abundant in power. Your understanding is beyond measure. You, merciful God, lift up the humble, and you cast the wicked to the ground. O Father, Hear us as we sing to you with thanksgiving, as we make melody to our God with much singing. You cover the heavens with clouds. You prepare rain for the earth. You make grass grow on the hills. You give to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Your delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor your pleasure in the legs of a man. But you, O Lord, take pleasure in those who fear you, in those who hope in your hesed, your steadfast love. Praise you, our God, Westmount Bible Chapel. Praise you, our God, church. For God, you strengthen the bars of your gates. You, our Lord, bless your children within these walls, within you. You make peace in your borders. You fill, you fill with the finest of the wheat. You send out your command to the earth, and your word runs swiftly. You give snow like wool. You scatter frost like ashes. You hurl down crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before your cold? You send out your word and melt them. You make the wind blow and the waters flow. You declare your word as you did to ancient Israel, as you've done to the church, your statutes and rules up to this day to us, the saints gathered right now at Westmount. You have not dealt with any other nation, or peoples this way. As we gather this morning, we're reminded that they do not know your rules. Oh, Father, be merciful to us as we open your word now and seek understanding and commit this time to you and say, praise the Lord. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. Our residence today, Exodus 15. If you're visiting with us, a warm welcome to you. 
We are so glad that you're here, and if you do not have a copy of God's Word, please just look in front of you, in the racks in front of you, you will see a Bible there. Please take one follow along, Exodus 15, the second book of the Bible. We have sung this morning, have we not? Singing is what God's people do in response to what he has done for them. This has always been the fitting and overwhelming response to Yahweh. In Ezra 3, as the exiles regathered in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, as they considered God's faithfulness to bring them back to the land, you can imagine, God promised, and here we are, the returning exiles would have said, as they looked on, think about it, the builders laying the foundation, they're watching this happen, God promised, and so it comes to be. Here's the temple being laid. Ezra 3.11 says, they sang. And sang, excuse me, this in response. The text says, praising and giving thanks to God. This is what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. You know that refrain. During King David's reign, after the Philistines were defeated and the ark was brought to Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 16, 7 tells us that David appointed this thanksgiving, these particular words, to be sung to the Lord. And you know these too. They go like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Speaking of David, many of the Psalms are David's responses to what God has done. For example, Psalm 40. In verse 2, David recounts this. He's thinking back on his life, and this is what he says. The Lord drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That is the work of God in David's life, right? That's what God has done. And then this response, the very next verse, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Fitting. Fitting. Psalm 28 says, The Lord heard my pleas for mercy. Thus, verse 7, with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 33 says, The word of the Lord is upright and all his work done in faithfulness. Thus, verse 3. Because of that, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 96, an entire psalm that calls God's people to declare the marvelous works of God among all the peoples. And then the psalm calls us to respond in verse 2, this, to sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. A precursor to David, of course, was Samuel, and the account of his birth was once barren Hannah. You remember, Hannah was barren as 1 Samuel 1 opens up, and she's pleading with God, praying to God. And God answered and gave her a child in his mercy and in his grace. And in response to, note it, God's work, God's work, Hannah responds to the work of God, and she does what? She sings. She sings this in 1 Samuel 2.1, my heart exalts in the Lord. She can't help herself. And then an extended text of rejoicing to Yahweh for what he has done to her. 
Further back than Hannah was the responsorial psalm of Deborah and Barak. Do you remember uh, that account in the time of Israel, the time of the judges, after seeing God subdue and destroy the Canaanites and their king Jabin? Judges 5, listen, a whole chapter opens with a responsorial psalm. And in verse 1, it says this, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom, on that day. Beloved, they sang. They sang. Back still one generation removed from the birth of the nation, the second generation that entered the promised land, after the second reading of the law in Deuteronomy, all the mighty works of God recounted, Moses, before handing off to Joshua, sang a song to the assembly, again, another almost full chapter in Deuteronomy 32. This is what we do. If this is what God has done, if this is what, uh, who God is, then we sing. Deuteronomy th- uh, 32. All of those responsorial songs, of course, patterned, and here it is, after the very first one at the birth of the nation. The very first one. And that first original composition from our God through his people, that first corporate song of praise is where your Bible is opened right now. In Exodus 15, look down at it. That is it. Exodus 15, after the Passover, well, even more, we could say this accurately. Think about this, the pathology of this first song. After the revelation of who God is in Exodus 3, after the Passover in Exodus 12, after the deliverance by way of the Red Sea, after God revealing who he is and what he does, this song on the far bank of the freshly delivered God's people the other side of the sea. Let's remind ourselves how we got here and what is indeed the backdrop of this song in chapter 15. Look at the end of the chapter before. Verse 30 of chapter 14. Remember this scene? Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, that mighty day of the Red Sea, from the hand of the Egyptians in Israel, saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Remember that? They saw the dead bodies. And they were reminded of the mighty power of God. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So here it is. Here is what initially is triggered. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the work we've just seen. This is what is the Lord has sovereignly infused in them. They see this, the fear now that this is our God and they believe on Yahweh. And then I love this, just keep reading into chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. Grammatically, what that tells you is this is the response. Because of that, then this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Saying, and I just want to pause for a moment and say there are many things that they could have done in this moment. But I want you to note this morning what they do. They sing. They sing. This is what we sang, or we would say recited this morning, remember? This is exactly what we did in union with God's people from this time. This song presents for us in Exodus 15, it presents us with the fundamental reasons why God's people sing. This is very insightful for us. This morning, this responsorial song from Israel will give us a theology of song. 
Today we will see at the birth of this nation Israel the building blocks of song. They remain for us those important song foundations of a response in worship right up to today. So let's begin with our first, and it's this, we will sing and we will sing to our God. We will sing to the Lord. Look with me at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You'll notice as this song opens the corporate reality of it. Who is singing? Verse 1, let's set that right. Moses and the people of Israel, that is who is singing. This is the gathering of God's people, yet as all the people gather and sing together, I want you to note the pronouns that are used in the opening of this song. Did you catch that? Look at the middle of verse 1, I will sing, and then in verse 2, seven personal pronouns there in reference to to a relationship to Yahweh. The Lord is my strength and my song. Look at it. He is my salvation, my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is corporate solidarity. This is what we do when we sing, church. We sing together as one body. We are a plural I, the many that is me. Do you see that? We come together as one voice, and give it to Yahweh. Now we take that one voice and we consider that. What we're doing, what we see here, where are we raising our voices? Said another way, to who is this song pointed? What is the intent of this song? Look again at verse 1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. What's the direction? To the Lord. That is the introduction. Then look at the first line. I will sing where? To the Lord. Israel sings to the Lord. That is direction and intent. That is to who we sing. Westmount, see in this fun, uh, fundamental song who it is that is being sung to. It's so important. Now, this may seem to you, maybe you're thinking right now, that's an obvious point, but we need to draw out the key implication. And I do implore you, this is just so important, especially today in modern worship. God's people don't sing to themselves, right? They don't sing to themselves. This is not a self-help endeavor. It's not. We don't sing for a pick-me-up. Listen, singing lifts and helps. It does that. Praise God. Yes, that happens. In God's grace, it's a fringe benefit, but here it is. That is not the, it is not the biblical reason why we sing. Listen, we sing to the Lord. This is not only what we see here in Exodus 15, but this is the testimony of Scripture. Consider Psalm 118 and Isaiah 12. Both say this, the Lord is my strength, and listen to this, my song. So the very song we sing is the Lord. You see that? Psalm 29, listen, just listen to how this psalm is introduced. I'm just going to read you the first two verses. Listen carefully to who this song is for. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In the New Testament with the church, nothing changes. We sing to the Lord. In fact, with the New Testament church, we're given the Christological force of our singing. Colossians 3, listen to verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And listen to this. With thankfulness in your hearts, where? To God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, where? To God, the Father through him. Beloved, we cannot miss this core truth of song. We sing, when we sing, like we've been doing this morning, we sing to the Lord. And if we miss this, beloved, this is why it's practically necessary this morning. If we miss that point, this salient point, true in all of God's word, we begin to do things like this. Select churches because of songs. That's what we do. We make the whole morning about the songs. Have you been there? Well, what songs did we sing? And how I feel walking out of church is just because of the songs that we sang. And I know you've heard this. I like the music. I don't like the music. I like the old stuff. I like the new stuff. I don't like that. I wouldn't do it this way. I would use this arrangement. And when we skip past who the song is for, the songs are not for us. When we skip past who the song is for, think about this. You make crucial decisions on ecclesiology, on church, on all of this, because you're making a decision when you say, well, it's about me. And you miss the point. It's to God. It's to the Lord. Just a reminder here of what we looked at last summer. Some of you are saying this kind of sounds familiar. God is glorified in the old song and hymn just as much as he's glorified in the modern arrangement. Praise God. That's why Ephesians 5.19 says we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's old and new, by the way. I love that in Ephesians 5.19. It's all there. And then, by the way, the verse ends with this, singing and making melody to yourselves. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. We want it to say that. Singing and making melody to the Lord, and here at core, with your heart. To the Lord with your heart, singing always to the Lord. Church, as Israel does here, so too we. We will sing to the Lord. It's one building block of song. Let's consider another. We will sing to the Lord and we will also sing of God's work. We will sing to the Lord and we will sing of God's work. By way of introduction to this point, this is the first why we sing to the Lord. We sing, of course, to the Lord, but there's reasons why we sing to the Lord that the Bible gives us, like right here. Singing to the Lord is a result of other truths. And the first one we see here, Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Right through to verse 10, as we read this morning, an account of what we have just read. It's a recap of what we've read in the chapters before, of what we've studied in Exodus, the work of God. And note God's work and God's work alone. That's what's recounted in this song. Do you see that? 
This is the work of God again that we have looked at week by week, passage by passage, studying, making clear it's a sovereign hand of God. The sovereignty of God, in fact, in all of it, the plagues and the power, the mercy and the judgment, all from God. All God's work, and that is what is being emphasized in the song here. And I want us to see this. It's all about God's work in this song. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and hosts, who was it that cast them into the sea? Yahweh. Look at verse 6. Whose right hand is glorious in power? Yours, O Lord, says Israel. By the way, you look at right hand there, right hand of the Lord. You know that expression. It's familiar imagery in God's word. God's right hand is the picture of God's power and his mighty works. That's the enduring scene and picture in the Old Testament especially. Listen to Psalm 98.1 and note the call in relation to God's right hand. Listen. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And why must we sing, psalmist? For he has done marvelous things. Here it is. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. You see the tide of singing? Simply, this is what we see in these verses in Exodus 15. We continue. Look at verse 7. Who overthrows the adversaries? Israel says, Yahweh, you do. Yahweh, you do. Who sends out the fury? God does. And speaking of fury, note the language in verse 8. Look at it. At the blast of your nostrils, like the right hand extended bodily pictures of power, but note it all from the Lord, his work, his power. He, verse 8, makes the waters pile up and the floods stand up. God's people sing because it matters not what the enemy says. Look at verse 9. In light of all that power... It doesn't matter what an enemy says. Verse 9 says, the enemy says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. It can sound very threatening, right? That's what the enemy wants to save the things of God. With an enemy like Egypt, and listen, as we've looked at, that'd be threatening to anyone in that day, the most powerful force in the world, but not the Lord. Note the act of God in verse 10. I love this. Right after verse 9. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Done. God in these noted effortless acts. Hand extended and exhale like here. Just makes it go away. It doesn't matter how powerful the force may seem. Almighty God is more powerful and ultimately powerful. Israel here sings in the wake of this mighty work of God, and that's the key. Consider it. Israel stands on the seashore while Egypt sits at the bottom of the sea. Can you grab that? There's Israel standing on the seashore, and why are they singing? If for no other reason, Egypt is dead at the bottom of the sea. And that salvation is only the result of who? Remember Moses' really crafty plan? Man, he figured that out. Remember the little thing Aaron said? Yeah, that No. God, Yahweh alone, that's it, because of him. As the beloved hymn says, I sing the mighty power of God. That's what we sing of. And then a whole hymn about his works. Psalm 92, the psalmist sings in verse 4, at the works of your hands, what? I sing for joy at the works of your hands. Don't you love that? At everything you do, Yahweh, I sing for joy because it's marvelous. 
Again, we must consider the implication here and note what we don't sing. This is key, so we get practical with each of these. We do not sing of our work. We don't do that. We don't sing of the things that we pledge we'll do for God. Beloved, because that wouldn't be a song at all. In fact, that would be emptiness. It's true. We can't sing of our power. No, brothers and sisters, we are weak. We can't sing of our devotion to God. Why? Because every week, as we're reminded when we examine ourselves, we fall, we stumble, and we sin. We can't sing of our love. Why, beloved? Because this week, I think probably for all of us, demonstrates how fickle we are. No, church, when we sing, we don't sing of our work, we sing of God's work. His faithfulness, and here it is, in light of our weakness and sin, uh, and sin isn't it a joy to sing of his mercy? No matter what we bring on Sunday mornings, we can stand under a merciful, here it is, faithful God, a faithful God. That's the beauty of song, that he never fails in his mercy toward us. His work is strong. He can be trusted. And our God never fails, even when we do, over and over again. Let's move on to the next pillar of song. We sing to the Lord. We sing of God's work. Thirdly, we will sing who God is. Remember, we opened our last point in our look at the last few verses, noting that the work of God was but one reason why we sing to the Lord. Yes, God's work is a foundational reason why we sing. Yet, it is not the only reason why we sing. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There, you see the questions. Those are rhetorical questions. In other words, questions that need no answer because the answer is so obvious. And here, obvious answers in light of the Exodus account. Look at them again, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's a reference to Egypt's, remember, so-called gods who have been exposed, right? They've been exposed. Who is like you among the so-called gods? Again, that's such a potent answer, rhetorical question. After 10 plagues and one Red Sea deliverance and judgment, the answer is no one. No one. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Who is so set apart? The answer is no one. Who is like you, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Again, the answer is no one. Egypt, the best of the earth, boasted of Pharaoh, the so-called God in flesh. Do you remember? He was God in flesh leading us, the Egyptians said in ancient times. Yet that so-called God was brought to his knees, humiliated, rendered impotent against Yahweh's might. His magicians, do you remember those? That's calling the experts. They know, exposed as charlatans. His kingdom routed and pillaged. Church, in verse 11, Israel sings the glaring, evident truth that there is none like God. Do you see that? They're just simply singing the obvious. There is no one like God. And if a verse like this, look at verse 11. If you look at that verse and you say, well, you know, that really sounds familiar. That's because it is. It permeates all of Scripture. Listen to Job 38, 4 and 5. Job 38, 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely, Job, you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 36. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Does that sound familiar? What about this, Isaiah 40? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? In other words, no one. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And more than that, Romans, as we continue, Romans 11, through church history, through the saints, this chorus in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And here we get the question again. Listen closely. Here's the question. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is no one. No one. And then the only fitting doxology and response in verse 36 of Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We see this all over scripture. Westmount, we will sing who God is. That's what we sing. We sing who God is. That is why we sing songs like our great God, O worship the king, and only a holy God. All songs where we're singing of who God is. We sing songs of who God is because that is what worship is. Remember from last year? That's what worship is. Giving God what he's due. Ascribing to God the glory that's due his name in his person and in his work. He alone is worthy to be praised. In Isaiah 6, the prophet receives a vision of who God is upon his throne. And in that vision, as the foundations of his house shake and smoke fills the house... This is what was declared in worship by the heavenly beings. Verse 3, you know this refrain because we sing it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Along with the heavenly host, we sing songs to church of who God is. And again, we do so alongside what God has done. What God has done. These are your twin, twin engines of song. We're reminded of these parallel tracks in the subsequent verses. Look down at verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Singing and reminding again of what God has done. By the way, steadfast love there is hesed. That's the word we've looked at before. The enduring covenant fidelity the loyal covenant love of God. That's the backdrop of everything that God does, that he is faithful, and you see it here in this song. 
look back at how he's been faithful to his people. And then the coming reality, look at verse 14. Then the look ahead. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. We just note that there for a moment. What's fascinating about the nations listed there is that at this time in Israel's history, they too would be in infancy. Yet this inspired word here paints a picture. Look at it. The Philistines do what? They're seized with pangs. The Edomites are dismayed. The Moabites tremble. What a picture. Future enemies of the nation of Israel and future objects, as the Old Testament will demonstrate, of God's mighty work as he judges those nations. In fact, in a future glimpse of God's promise-fulfilling work, we get this too. Look at the end of verse 15. The Canaanites have what? Melted away. Those words are almost a word-for-word preview of what's coming when they enter the promised land. There's a certain Canaanite that says, we have heard of the Red Sea. We actually here in Canaan have heard of the mighty works of your God. Remember that was Rahab. And by faith of understanding who God is and what he can do, the Lord saved her mercifully. But the same idea, so this is a a forward pointer to that moment as they enter the promised land. The Canaanites melt away, melt away. You think about the the words there, they're affirmed with this powerful picture in verse 17. Look at it. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The mountain, you see it there, that sanctuary, not just a pointer to Sinai or Jerusalem, but this is looking directly, ultimately, it is those But ultimately this, the temple itself, those sweeping events, spanning time, reminding us of who God is. Yahweh has no limits. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Psalm 90 verse 2. Yes, the reality of an eternal sovereign Lord is in this song too. Look at verse 18. There it is. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Church, that ancient refrain is no different to what we sing today. We sing a song like, Behold Our God, and what do we sing at the end of it? You shall reign forever. We we sing this. And Westmount, that song we sing today is no different to the song. Look at it embedded in Exodus 15, the song sung here, but look at this now. The song sung to come. Revelation 4.13, where it says, Every creature in heaven and on earth, And under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, join together and sing. And here's the refrain. To him who sits on the throne to the Lamb, be blessing and honor, glory and might. And here it is, forever and ever. This is a song of the redeemed from all time. Revelation 4, today, 2021, Exodus 15. This is what we sing. He will reign forever and ever. Church, Christ, the Lamb, the Son of God alone is worthy. That is why they sing the heavenly host. That's why the martyrs sing, even in death. That's why the saints have always sung, no matter what's going on in the world. They sing. They sing. They sing all of, he, of who he is and all of what he's done. And Westmount, that is why we will sing, because of who God is. But there's one more here in this song, one more. We will sing to the Lord. 
We will sing of his work. We will sing of who God is. And we will sing because we must. We will sing because we must. Let us read the postscript starting there in verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 19 as you look at it again, provides a final summative recap that undergirds this song. The four there, do you see the four at the beginning of 19? It's as if to say this song is a result of this. It's what ties it together. Because of this, it's a final summary. In verse 20, then, we're formally introduced to Miriam. It's the first mention of her the sister of Moses. Now you'd say, well, wait, haven't we seen Miriam before? We have. This is the first time she's named. We have seen Miriam before in Exodus 2. Remember, she was the faithful monitor of the basket. Remember that? Dispensed by mom to watch the basket in the reeds. That was Miriam. There, very much presented and acting as the sister of Moses, as she is and was. Yet here, She's offered now in this text with two other titles, and you'll find them both in verse 21. Look at it. Number one, Miriam is called the prophetess. Now, prophets, as we've commented on already in Exodus, so we don't need to cover uh, or recap much of that. We've already looked at this. These are those that have words from God. Those given direct revelation from God. That's what a prophet was. And revelation given to the prophet, and here it is, to be given to God's people. God used this ancient office of prophet, like here, to communicate to his people. Now, although the prophets, as we know them, the inspired writers, as you look at your Bible, they were men, there were at times where Lord raised up women in a special circumstance for a special time. We think of Deborah. We've already commented on Deborah and Barak. And why was she raised up? One in part, Barak had a problem. He was afraid of enemies, right? And God raises up Deborah and says, well, look, if, if you're not going to go and do it, this judge, this lady will, will, will receive the fame. So you see God using ladies very particularly in his economy. And there is here these ladies with a special function and role in God's plan. And here the role of Miriam already witnessed in a significant way. Remember Exodus 2, very, very significant. She is there as Pharaoh's daughter considers how to care for this child, how to nurse this child, and lo and behold, Miriam. And now here, her prophesying, speaking from God and noted to the assembly, look at the beginning of verse 21. She grabs the tambourine, she grabs the other women, and she does what? She prophesies. And note this, her singing comes after the song has been sung. You see the then in verse 20. There's no latency here. This is immediately after in the event. She's stirring up the assembly to not only respond in song, but this is key for Miriam, but to continue to. Do you see verse 21 there? She's saying continue to sing. Even after the song is done, continue to sing. 
And why? Because this is what God's people must do. There is no other fitting response. So God uses Miriam here to stir them up to do that. But that's one title. Secondly, she's referred to in verse 20 as the sister of Aaron. This is not to distance her from Moses, do you see that? But it's to remind us of her lineage. Remember, this is a similar reason why we were given a genealogy in chapter 6. A line tracing Aaron back to Levi, a lineage that reminded us of Aaron's family. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, sons and daughters, and a daughter of Levites. And when you think of the Levites, this family, the Levites, had a function. What was it? To keep Israel worshiping. That was their function. We, of course, we'll get to this later in Exodus, but for now we just need to note that. Reminders and refrains were needed in church. They're still needed today. Why? Why? Because without those reminders to keep worshiping, we have a tendency, no market, a bad habit to forget them. And I think you see that today. We, we cast worship aside as if it's dispensable. We can put it on the shelf for a time, and then a funny thing happens, we never get back to it. And you need this reminder to keep worshiping. When we get off track, we stop singing. And beloved, when we stop singing, that is dangerous. When you hit a point in the corporate assembly and you're not singing, all the dashboard lights are lit up. Why? Why do we say that? Because we're called to sing. Mark it. We are commanded to sing. Look at verse 21. That's command. Sing to the Lord. One last look at verse 21. Sing to the Lord. Why? For he's triumphed gloriously. Sing to the Lord. Now let's be clear on this publicly. It is not okay to hum. It's not okay. It's not okay to hum. And it's not okay to lip sync. I don't see any commands in scripture to do that. With mouths open, lungs full, and hearts aflame, we sing, church, because we must. There is no other response. It's like telling a fish not to swim. We must sing, and we will sing. Nothing will stop us from singing. I could recite here, and I was tempted, believe me, to give you the hundreds and hundreds of commands to sing that are being cast aside today. After 12 months, stop singing. But I trust as we conclude our look at this first song in Israel, the truth is plain. I pray the text speaks for itself. Sing. Church, we will sing. Why? Because we must. Because we must. Westmount, we will sing like Hezekiah in response to God granting mercy in his recovery. Do you remember Isaiah 38? Westmount, we will sing because we must. Like Jonah, rescued from the whale's belly in Jonah 2, what did he do? He sang, and Westmount, we will sing. Why? Because we must. Like Daniel, in response to receiving wisdom and insight, remember that? When he, he receives Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, what's his response? He knows that no man should have this kind of revelation. And what does Daniel do? He sings. Daniel 2 and Westmount, we will sing because we must. Like Mary in response to the child that was given no ordinary child in her womb in Luke 1, what does she do? She runs to the philosophers, to the scientists. Can you help me figure this thing out? Because I haven't laid with a man. What does she do? The Magnificat. She sings. Westmount, we will sing because we must. We will sing because we must. 
all singing to the Lord, singing of his work and of who God is. Westmount, we will sing. Like Paul and Silas, you want to talk about persecution. What did they do? In response to imprisonment, in Acts 16, the apostles before them, what did they do? What about Acts 5, 41? What did they do? Note this text, Acts 41. They left the presence of their persecutors, what? Singing with joy. It was very unsafe to sing. And did they sing? Receiving. This is what the text says. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So even more in persecution, God's people sing. That's what they do. And so Westmont Bible Chapel, we will sing. And that's not just because we like to sing at Westmont. Isn't it great? We do like to sing, right? And we sing very well, if I do say so myself. Not me, but you guys sing very, very well. But we don't do that just because it feels good. We do it as we walk through all of these, but ultimately here and we end with this, the words of your Savior and Lord. There was a worship controversy that first Palm Sunday. We're going to have Palm Sunday in two weeks. The leaders and authorities of the day had something to say about worship. Remember those pilgrims all along the road? What were they doing? Worshiping. Oh, and the leaders didn't like it. The authorities of the day. No, don't do that. Pick it up in Luke 19. Let's get the account. You can turn there. Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. I just love this picture of sovereignty. Who is masterfully in control in this situation? This is what will happen. This is how it's going down. Go and do it and watch it come to fulfillment. How can you not? Can you just imagine these who just said, wow, we are not worthy. But it continues, verse 32. So those who were, who were sent away and found it, look at it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, listen to this, the power of a name, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. In other words, there's nothing else to say. The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And just picture for a moment, as he should. Give him the worship he's due. He's almighty, sovereign God. Give him the worship. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, so not just the disciples, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Of course they would, right? Of course. And they said this, this is their praise, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we just pause there for a moment to say, yes, that's the way it should be, right? That's the way it should be. That's the only fitting response. Well, you know, pilgrim, the, the authorities are going to come after you. I don't care. Praise God, Hosanna. And look at this in verse 39, and here it is. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, how dare they sing? Walk away with this response from Jesus. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
God will be praised. Do you want to be a part of that praise and exaltation to our Lord, or do you want to be left behind? We praise our God. We are the living stones, 1 Peter 2.5, that cry out, we cannot be constrained. We cannot be. We will sing. We will sing to the Lord. We will do so, and let's pray so that we can do that. Father, we thank you that we will sing. We thank you that we can. We thank you, Father, that there is no constraint to our singing. We thank you for the divine map toward as long as there's breath in our lungs until our final breath of life, we can sing. It's no accident, Lord. So we thank you for this glorious truth that we see even in ancient Israel and the birth of a nation. And oh God, now we sing along with God's redeemed of all ages. We sing to you because of who you are and what you've done. To God be the glory.